Hey, everybody. How's your day going? Um, you know, my day isn't actually going that bad. I did do a lot of skiing yesterday, and something's wrong with my boots. So I have these bruises all over my ankles, and it really hurts. But um, I just want to say, firstly, before this podcast begins, I am... I am so sorry about the audio on my last podcast episode because the audio on that was just terrible. Um, and I'm also sorry that I have not had a very consistent posting schedule. Just, I usually try to go on Fridays, but Friday was Christmas and then we had family coming in, which just gave me a lot of anxiety, but let's just get started. So today we are continuing the 50 States Unsolved series with Um, I think it's called the Golden State. Uh, Sorry for the obscure reference, but history fact, if you don't know, gold was found in California in 1849, which is why it is called, you know, they have a football team, I think, called the 49ers. Um, But this began the gold rush. So Colorado actually has Californian gold to thank because some miners were so, you know, disparaged. They were thinking, everyone's out there. I'm never going to find gold. And they, in fact, did find gold. Um, So they found gold in Colorado. And just a little mean thing. um, Even though you drive terribly, thank you, California, because Colorado would not be a state without you. Um, So unlike the last case we covered, I was not alive when this happened. Nor, I mean, I have been to California um, for my sister's, like, 17th birthday a few years ago, but I have never been to the actual prison on one of those, like, ferry boat tours. I also think you have to wear, like, a hard hat when you're in the prison, um, just because it's, like, such a decaying state, but, um, this is the case of the Alcatraz Escapes. Getting into the case, first, I want to cover some background into the prison, the escapees, the reported plan and evidence, and lastly, theories. So I feel like there's this notion that, you know, oh, Alcatraz, the rock, the most inescapable prison. And until the escapes, the idea of the inescapable prison is largely true. So Alcatraz is a maximum security federal prison prison or penitentiary located in San Francisco Bay about 1.25 miles off of the coast of San Francisco and again for my metric folks that is just over two kilometers so this becomes especially important later on but why is the rock so inescapable well firstly the water in the San Francisco Bay has an average temperature of 53 degrees Fahrenheit again 11 degrees Celsius and San Francisco Bay has a moderate 10.5 miles per hour average wind speed in the bay um But then again, that's kind of very low, moderate, so that's not something to be afraid of. But San Francisco Bay also boasts an average July, which the escapes took place in July, temperature of 67 degrees Fahrenheit and a low of 54 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 19 and 12 degrees Celsius, respectively. And most terrifyingly, there are reported 10 species of sharks that inhabit the bay. Um, There's also constant ships, which just are always heading in and out of the bay. So the island has been the site of a fort since the 1850s and supposedly held prisoners of the Civil War. 
The main structure that we associate with Alcatraz, the prison, was built in 1910 to 1912 and was built for the purposes of being a military prison. Kind of like, um, obviously we shouldn't make light of the Guantanamo Bay situation because I think Cuba, which where is uh, Guantanamo Bay is, even Cuba is like, all right, get out of here, but the U.S. just won't leave. But kind of like a Guantanamo Bay situation, it's this offshore prison you know, a lot of high-ranking prisoners are sent there. And speaking of high-ranking prisoners, uh, we'll actually talk about that in a second, but the U.S. Department of Justice acquired the prison in October 1933, and by August of 1934, the prison had become part of the Federal Bureau of Prisons after, essentially, they just added security and a couple more buildings to help with the functionality. Um, And the island of Alcatraz, like I said earlier, housed several famous prison prisoners, including Al Capone and the Birdman of Alcatraz. That's kind of fun, even though that's kind of a misnomer because he had birds, but at the prison before Alcatraz, he didn't really have birds at the Alcatraz, which is very interesting. But anyways, there were several escape attempts from the island. All were unsuccessful, resulting in the escapee either being shot or recaptured. So some notable ones were Joseph Bowers and the Battle of Alcatraz. Joseph Bowers was reportedly the first escape attempt from the prison. Um, So Bowers was assigned to burn trash at the incinerator, um, you know, because it is probably like 1910 or something. And you know, they burn trash, which is so great. Oh my gosh. That reminds me, my dad is so old that he actually used to like burn trash as a child, which is insane to me. Every time I like ask him about it, he's always like, oh, well, it was only paper. And I was like, still not the best, but at least they weren't burning plastic. Anyways, um, so burned trash at the incinerator. He was caught scaling a chain link fence when the guards, you know, noticed he was trying to escape. After he refused uh, orders of the officer to come down, he was shot. He was injured um, of the fall of the 50 feet or 15 meters and died shortly after. So the Battle of Alcatraz is very interesting. It's kind of something that's like straight out of like criminal minds. Um, But it's an incident in Alcatraz in 1946 and is regarded as the most violent escape attempt. So it basically happened like six prisoners took control of the cell house by overpowering officers and entered the weapons room. Here they demanded keys to an outside recreation door Um, But this guard, who we'll talk about him, he's not really relevant in the Alcatraz escape attempts that we're talking about, but either way, William Miller is the guard, and he turned over all the keys except the key to the outer door, and he kind of just pocketed that key. So the prisoner's aim was to escape by boat from the dock, but they were unable to open the outside door and decided to battle it out. So they held Miller and a second guard hostage, prompted by... So there were six escapees, or like six people that kind of started the battle and were trying to escape. But either way, so three people, Shockley, Thompson, and Kretzer, excuse me, um, shot the hostages at very close range. Um, Miller, that guard from earlier, he died. Um, and the second guard was also killed. So anyways, Setzer, Hubbard, and Coy, uh, three prisoners, again, persisted with their fight, and three out of the six were shot, and three out of the six were 
detained. The prison, since thought to be inescapable, had some amenities and lighter, more lax security inside the prison than it probably should have. So these included a prison maintenance crew, a prison band, barbershop, etc. Um, and then the 1962 escapees would use this lax security to their advantage during the escape. So now for the fun part, let's meet our escapees. First, we have John and Clarence Anglin. So these two were bank robbers hailing from the Peach State, Georgia. I've got an uncle from Georgia. Um, but anyways, the brothers were born into a family of 13 and the Anglin parents, Rachel and George, were seasonal workers. They would move the family every June to begin harvesting crops. Anyone listening who grew up with more than two siblings understands that in larger families, siblings kind of form cliques, um, and essentially just become inseparable. So I can't really tell the brothers apart because they're basically the same, but Fun fact, Clarence was the first brother to be arrested at the age of 14. Um, Okay, so now just kind of getting back into their, like, past. Um, After a particularly unlucky robbery at Columbia Savings Bank in Columbia, Alabama, they were both arrested and given 15 to 20 year sentences and sent to the Atlanta penitentiary. Something to note is that this is where the Anglin brothers met our other two escapees, Frank Morris and Alan West, at this Atlanta penitentiary. The Anglin brothers would not actually meet Miss Morris and West again for a few years, but they were eventually sent to the Florida State Prison and then Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Again, after a failed escape attempt, the guards thought, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with these prisoners? Let's send them somewhere inescapable. So they decided to send them to Alcatraz. John was sent in October of 1960 and Clarence in 1961, and that's January of 1961. Frank Lee Morris is our next escapee. So he was born in Washington. We don't really know that much about his past, but he was orphaned at the age of 11 and spent his years moving between foster houses. Um, He was convicted of his first crime at age 13. He finally landed in the Louisiana State Penitentiary, where after a 1960 escape, he was caught after a failed burglary. In a failed attempt to stop Morris from trying to escape prison, they sentenced him to 14 years at Alcatraz. Officials now believe that Morris was the mastermind of the escape because of his high IQ of 133. And if you don't really know anything about IQ, it's the scale is out of 160. So this is already super high um, of an IQ that he had. So as I mentioned earlier, our last member of the crew is Alan West. So I say a member of the crew because due to a block in his cell, which is like very, very suspicious, but either way, he wasn't able to drill through the cell wall grate or like around it to widen the hole um, in time to meet up with Morris and the Englands, who essentially just decided to leave him behind. Um, Okay, so our last member is Alan West. So we know a lot more about him because, again, he did not end up escaping. So we do actually have a confirmed death date from him. It's kind of sad. He did spend his, like, whole life in prison. But he was born in New York City in March of 1929. And we do know for a fact that Alan West died in December of 1978 due to an appendicitis. And, you know, that's when your appendix bursts. And I think he just couldn't get like medical treatment fast enough. And then he just died because of it. So he was imprisoned for car theft in 1955 at the Atlanta Penitentiary, where, again, he met the Anglin brothers and West. 
and um, then at the Florida State Prison. So after an unsuccessful escape attempt from the Florida facility, he was transferred to Alcatraz in 1957. And Wes claimed upon being interviewed by prison authorities that he was the mastermind of the escape, despite his less than eighth grade education. So just to kind of pit West and Morris against each other. You know, he has less than an eighth grade education and Morris probably does too. But Morris, we know for a fact, has an IQ of 133. So it's like, who do you really think um, planned the escape attempt? Plus, at the same time, Morris isn't there. So he can't say like, no, 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 I planned it. This guy's just a clout chaser. (laughs) Um, A 1960s version of a clout chaser. But yes. So Now let's get into the evidence about the reported plan. Sources differ about whether, or sorry, sources differ about when the plan to escape was conceived, with sources saying between one year and six months before the escape. So just like I mentioned, they had all been at Alcatraz for a a very, like a varying amount of time because Alan West had been at Alcatraz since 1957 and then the Anglin brothers, 1960, 1961. And, uh, Morris is also 1960. So they've been at Alcatraz for a varying number of years. So you could maybe say that, well, West has been there since 57. So he's been there for, what is that, like four years at the time of the escape? So he might have known more about the prison, but I do think just with Morris's history, I guess this isn't really important, but I think with Morris's history, it's a lot more likely that he actually um, planned the escape. So, um, so we do know that when they conceived the escape, they decided that if you couldn't get to their meetup point by the time the inmates were escaping, you would be left behind. Now, remember this, tuck it into your head, because this becomes really important later. So we do know that the prisoners requested to transfer or were placed in the same cell block. So this is cell block B, because there was a rumor that a ventilation grate on the roof of the prison was not sealed over with concrete. And this was like directly above cell block B. So the plan, according to West, was to enlarge the cell cell grates behind the cells, which were originally nine inches by 15 inches. And like, you can just imagine that it's like the smallest thing you would not be able to get in there. Anyways, once they're enlarged, supposedly they should be able to crawl through them. And um, basically they would head to a workshop they had created and head onto the roof through the unsealed ventilation grate. And then they would kind of be climbing through pipes or like on pipes, kind of using them as something to stand on. Um, but it helped to ensure their mutual trust that they had known each other from their time in Atlanta, um, in that, or I think what is Florida, but either way, they had prison experience with each other in the past. But anyways, over the next six months, the men widened their ventilation ducts behind their cells and, uh, they use it, used discarded saw blades that they found on the prison grounds. They also smuggled, um, metal spoons from the mess hall and an electric drill they made. They, uh, it was very, very ingenious, but they made this from the motor of a vacuum cleaner, which I just think is amazing that they were able to do that. So anyways, they were able to conceal the progress of their holes with walls that they painted and these were cardboard. So they would just like kind of put it on there and they would conceal it, the noise of their work with the louder noise of 
an accordion or this like music hour that they'd have uh, at Alcatraz because this is just like the most cartoonish prison, which I think is crazy. But anyways, now again, this sort of maintenance crew prison band type things that the prisoners were on and used to conceal the fact that they are drilling into the walls would not fly now. Uh, when I was doing research for this for my HL art project in one of the brothers cells england has uh i think it was clarence but either way in one of the england brothers cells there's a guitar so i have to wonder if clarence or john was on the prison band but then again you did have to be like a very like established like good behavior prisoner to be on the band so that's that's also something that I'm wondering um another thing though is that I was watching a documentary about the escapees and apparently when the FBI conducted interviews with the prisoners they found that something like 80 prisoners escaped uh aided in the escape in some way you know one was teaching them how to make this um like paper mache material that they would put on the heads and so I think it's just very interesting that this was kind of a group mentality of these hardened prisoners at, you know, this, quote, inescapable prison, that they almost just collectively decided that if they couldn't escape, they were going to help the people who were going to escape. Um, and they were just these were like complete strangers. So they were going to help them get out of the prison. I am so sorry for any background noise. Um uh, the house is so loud, so I'm currently in my car outside of the house, and people are just walking around. I think some guy is calling his very, very fluffy dog. Um, sorry about that, but one prisoner, I like, he must have been so smug because he even told the FBI that he had um, taught the escapees how to make the plaster, you know, paper mache mixture, which they later discovered on the decoy heads. And there's even a mafia me member, which was supposedly in the prison at the time, which supposedly, like, he admitted that he was going to, like, rent a boat for the prisoners to escape on. And, you know, more on this later because this kind of becomes a theory. So we also know that one of the escape members was on a prison maintenance crew. And I think this is a very important fact that I think is glossed over a lot is the workshop. So as many prisons are built, no cell was on an outside wall. Just think of how so many, uh, so many uh, prisoners try to escape via a window. So above the first floor of the cells, there was kind of this open space above the cell block that all the prisoners were placed in. So I think it was West, but he would purposely push the dust that collected on that upper area because he was on the maintenance crew so you know it was his job to remove the dust but he would purposely push it onto the guards so they understandably hated this so they would allow him to hang up blankets which was so stupid but that allowed him to uh kind of obscure his areas and hide what they were doing so this just became a workshop for them where they would showcase their abilities and ingenuity the plan so now we have to get into the plan. So the alleged plan past the escape was told to FBI by West after he was left behind. I personally think it was a little bit of an error on the FBI to completely trust West as a witness. And we'll discuss later why or how he might have had a motive to, dis to mislead the hunt for his friends. But here is what we know according to the evidence. And then I'll get into West's account of what was supposedly going to happen. 
on the night of June 11, 1962, with the papier-mâché heads lying in their beds, the inmates would escape to an unguarded corridor behind all their cells. Like I alluded to earlier, all of them would escape except West, who could not get the grate off the back of his cell in time. Apparently, West was not the brightest, again, eighth grade education, because he put cement, cement, you know, something that hardens. I believe it's used in streets. It's either cement or concrete. I can't tell the difference, but he put cement. I don't even know how he got a hold of that, but either way, um, he put cement around like the ventilation grate. And when it hardened and sealed the grate, it took him time to get it off. So anyways, from the service corridor, the Anglins were able to climb to their workshop and then climb a ventilation shaft, you know, put their feet, use these pipes as footholds, and they got on that unsealed ventilation grate to the roof. Sometime during the night, a loud bang was heard coming from the roof, but it wasn't investigated because there were no further noises. And this is reports by guards, so it's like a little bit more trustworthy than these um, fellow prisoners. Um, but it's theorized that this is the sound of the ventilation cover snapping open and hitting the roof as the escapee got on the roof, but we don't really know when this sound took place. I've heard some people say it's between 10 and midnight, so just keep that in mind. Um, according to evidence, and maybe this is why the FBI trusted West, because he gave them a story that they were able to confirm, so they were like, well, if he's this willing to um, turn on his friends, maybe he'll tell us the rest of the plan. But uh, according to West's testimony, um, the plan was for the inmates to climb down a kitchen vent pipe 50 feet or 15 meters and then either climb or cut to, because uh, they were like chain link, but they had barbed wire on top. So it almost just seems like, because I've heard reports that they either climbed it or cut it, but to 12 feet or 3.7 meter um, barbed wire fences. So once free of the prison and fences, the inmates would make their way down the northeast shore of the island. Um, so you're probably like, why would they do this? So this was actually very another strategic thing that they did. Um, this was because it was a relative blind spot because there was this like series of lights that went all through the island and this was just one place that did not have those vents or those lights. So if the guards somehow already knew that this plan and they were like on them, even though it was very unlikely, they're just, you know, crossing their I's, dotting their T's. Nope, nope. Crossing their T's and dotting their I's. Um, basically, yeah, it was basically blind from the network of lights and guard towers. So kind of thinking like if they get close to catching us, we still have an, an advantage. So they inflated their raft with a concertina. It's it's like an instrument. I'm like 99% sure. I think it's, it's one of those things that like, I, I really don't know, maybe Google search it. Um, but the plan according to West was that the men would float and row to Angel Island and steal a car and then commit various robberies and reach out to family members for money. Um, okay. So the aftermath of the escape after the guards discovered the disappearance, very terrifyingly, might I add, by pushing one of the heads to wake it up because, you know, at like 6am, I think they kind of were yelling at people like, okay, time to wake up. And then they like, you know, reached in the cell and like pushed their heads to try to get the inmates to wake up. But the head, you know, cause it's a paper mache head just fell to the ground 
So after they realized that there was an escape, they just went on complete lockdown and conducted very extensive air, sea, and land searches. So the inmates had already had a very strong advantage because most law enforcement and even the prison warden believed that the prison was just so impenetrable that the inmates could not have survived. You know, they must be dead. Like, we're looking for dead bodies. Meanwhile, they're, like, scurrying off in some stolen cars and things like that. So um, also, they believed that kind of believably because of the frigid waters and the sharks. Um, I feel like I'm going to bring this up later, but there is a very annual triathlon that goes on, and I don't think anyone's died from that. So this frigid waters and sharks aren't something to be too afraid of. But anyways, um, it's a very extensive search. They brought in multiple military units, local and federal police to work on and try to capture the inmates or at least find evidence of their deaths and they would never be found. So here is getting into a list of evidence. Like I said in my last podcast episode about Joshua Maddox, go listen to that if you haven't already. But um, I just try to list out all the evidence so you can really just get the whole perspective and then see what theory that you think equally connects all the evidence before making a decision. So I'll try to put this in chronological order, but there are a lot of like unchronological evidence pieces. But on June 14th, a Coast Guard ship picked up a paddle in the water 200 yards or 180 meters off of Angel Island. On June 14th, in the same vicinity as the Coast Guard ship, workers found a wallet that contained names, photos, and contact infos of several England relatives. So the thought is here that, you know, these prisoners would not willingly leave behind all of these photos uh, and all of this just like memorabilia. They wouldn't leave this behind. But you also have to think that like they're hardened prisoners at this point. They value their freedom more than they do a few trinkets. So that's just very interesting. But yes, um, on June 21st, shreds of raincoat materials, which again, that is what they used to make their raft. They like vulcanized it with steam from the pipes, like very ingenious here, but they found raincoat materials. I guess they identified it from Alcatraz. I don't really have any evidence on whether they knew it was from Alcatraz, but Anyways, they found these raincoat materials near Golden Gate Bridge. On June 22nd, a prison boat would find a deflated life jacket 50 yards off of Alcatraz Island. On July 16th, or 17th, sorry, a Norwegian freighter, so this is 1962, so this might be the next year, because I think it happened in, what, 1961? Um, But anyways, July 17th, 1962, a Norwegian freighter, the SS, oh, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing this, Norfagel? No. I am so sorry. Um, anyways, they spotted a body floating 17 miles or 28 kilometers offshore of the Golden Gate Bridge. So I think this might just be like kind of out to sea at this point. Um, but anyways, because so they're leaving the bay at this point. Um, they were unable to stop and call the sighting in until they l- returned in October. So they were not able to call the sighting in. And I think once they did, you know, it wasn't really there. But um, Coroner Henry Turkle cast doubt on the speculation that it could be one of the escapees, emphasizing the improbability that a body would still be fo- floating on the surface of the ocean after more than a month. Um, instead, 
Turkle proposed that a corpse may have been that of a baker who had committed suicide from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge five days earlier. Um, but then again, most of this case is just back and forth because there were several other coroners who cited that it probably was the escapees. So there's like back and forth, like maybe no, maybe so. Okay. Eight months after the escape, uh, human remains are found off of the northern shore of Golden Gate Bridge. If you want to Google search this, it's called Point Reyes, R-E-Y-E-S. Um, anyways, that's found near kind of the place where the Norwegian ship sighted seeing the body. Um, anyways, the bones were... Uh, recovered and they were just buried. I don't think they did any test, but um, anyways, they figured that they had belonged to a man of Morris's age and height. It was buried under the name John Bones Doe, I guess, um, but otherwise it was very inconclusive. I mean, it is like 1961 or 62, so they they, 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 they don't have any sort of the like uh, technology that we have today. So anyways, um, so the U.S. Marshal Robert Dyke, I'm going to talk about him a lot. He's a very key figure in this case, but because uh, I, I think he's one of like the lead investigators that focused on this case. But basically, he said that many people have died in San Francisco and have been found, yet the bodies of the inmates have never been found, just kind of like the way that the tides work. And then here's a quote from him. He says, the bodies of two out of every three people who go missing in San Francisco Bay are eventually recovered. Okay, so another piece of evidence that I do think is really important is Robert Chechi's account. So, um, Robert Chechi was an off-duty police officer, and here is a quote from a local news source. So, Robert Chechi was an off-duty San Francisco police car sitting in his car just before midnight at Marina Green that evening. He was gazing out into the bay when he noticed what he calls a, quote, pristine white boat, quote. Chechi says he immediately felt like something was wrong because the boat had no lights on. He didn't see anybody on the boat and didn't hear any noise coming from the boat. But after watching the boat intently for several minutes, he said a light went on. He said somebody on the boat shining a flashlight or spotlight into the dark waters of the bay. Uh, he, he just said it didn't look right. It, he said it, I said it was really unusual. It started moving and the port and starboard lights came on and he couldn't tell whether it went north or south. It just disappeared. And then there's also some theories that state the men only had to take their primitive raft to the boat and not to the island. And remember the, quote, mafia connections that the prison one prisoner had who, like, volunteered that he would, like, um, charter a boat off the mountain or, I am so sorry, off the, the island for the the prisoner escapees and per west direction um anyways sorry per west direction the group planned on stealing a car and committing small robberies but no crimes were matching like west said would occur according to their plan so it's like okay so his plan is already kind of not matching up so well 
But um, so now we need to get into deathbed confessions and letters. So really just because this case has remained um, open and unsolved for such a long period of time, there have been several deathbed confessions, letters to police and the FBI. So here are some notable ones. So continuing with the Robert Cheshi story, John Leroy Kelly, who died in 1993, dictated an extended deathbed confession to his nurse. Nurse Kelly claimed that he and his partner picked up Morris and the Anglins from the bay in a boat and transferred them to transported, excuse me, them to Seattle, Washington, and later under the guise of transporting the escapee escaped convicts to Canada, Kelly and his partner double-crossed and murdered the escapees to get the $40,000 their families had collected for them. Kelly, feeling lifelong guilt over his part, felt obligated to confess uh what he did to a priest and um a nurse Robert and sorry Robert and the others <sighs> sorry Roderick and the others found a location in Seattle where Kelly the guy who died said that the escapees bones would be buried but again a dig at the site failed to turn up any bones and I think we've all seen it but there was that photo running around you could probably just google search it and find so many like clickbaity articles saying that, you know, the inmates have been found and things like that. But there's this photo which allegedly shows the Anglin brothers in Brazil, um, circa 1965. And apparently the FBI dispatched agents to Brazil to find the inmates and none were found. And there have been sightings all over the world of the brothers and Morris. And I, I mean, I don't even know if they survived, but I also don't know, like, how much validity we should really take into this. I don't know how much, like, validity we should take into all these sightings because, you know, after Elvis died, there were probably, like, 60 or 70 sightings of people seeing him, and it's like, we, we actually have records that he died, so I don't know how much you really want to take into this, but we also need to get into the escape feasibility so before we even talk about theories, we need to look at some key factors that will affect whether the inmates actually um, survived. So the small raft which was constructed was supposedly vulcanized with steam from the steam pipes, making it somewhat waterproof. There was no rudder on the side of the raft, which really just kind of made the inmates a victim of the tide. Um, in December 1962, literally <laughs> six months after the famous escape, John Paul... Scott, um, Scott, John, sorry. Anyways, um, John Paul Scott successfully swam the 2.7 miles from Alcatraz to Fort Point. And today there are two annual triathlon events where people can swim this Alcatraz to Fort Points and there are no casualties that I know about. Yes, I don't really know if there were any casualties. Also, the men had a lot of adrenaline on their side, um, really just meaning that if we fail, we either die or go to jail. So that creates a lot of adrenaline, which can help them survive. So in 1989, in Unsolved Mysteries, two theories were tested, one by having a triathlete swim from Alcatraz to mainland and the other having three experienced kayakers paddle the same route in a replica of the raft used by Morris and the Anglins. 
So while this raft, so anyways, the rafters ended up failing due to their raft being unseaworthy and they had to be rescued by a motorboat that was shadowing their progress, you know, making sure that they don't drown. But the swimmer did succeed making it to shore. So like maybe if they got away from their boat, they, they could survive. So anyways, um, a modern experimental and computer simulated evidence has shown that the ultimate outcome of the raft or excuse me, the attempt may have depended on the exact time of the men's departure because whether they were there, there's just a lot of different things, um, that would have kind of affected the factors. So whether, you know, whether they depended, um, departed a certain time, whether they were sitting on the raft or using paddles, or they were doing that thing that I think we've all done where like you're kind of kickboarding. So like your hands are clinging onto something and you're only using your feet. Um, and also a 2003 Mythbusters episode on the Discovery Channel tested the feasibility of an escape from the island aboard a raft. Again, this is basically just a replica and determined it was possible uh, contrary to the inmates' intended destination after uh, escaping Alcatraz being Angel Island, the Miss Mythbusters theorized that if the escapees had used the tides to go to a different location, the makeshift raft crafted and crewed by the Myth Mythbusters team made it across the bay and made it to somewhere that I believe is close to um, Golden Gate Bridge. It's called Marin Headlands. So there was a theory or like a scale model, excuse me, of San Francisco Bay Area. And it was basically just, um, anyways, sorry. So the tide they figured out could have washed the paddle in the direction of Angel Island if released from the Marin Headlands, which is like maybe that's where they actually went. But as their theory of how the escape could have exceeded, no concrete evidence existed to prove or disprove this theory. Okay, so in the FBI to the U.S. Marshals, all of the files, so like in the transition, excuse me, from the FBI to the U.S. Marshals, all of these files were examined in a 2011 documentary on the National Geographic channel titled Vanished from Alcatraz. So Michael Dyke, the deputy U.S. Marshal, discovered that there was in fact some carjackings in the greater Bay Area and that a raft was discovered on June 12th, a day after the escape. So this carjacking was reportedly a 1955 blue Chevrolet with a Californian license plate, and it was reported that at 11.30 a.m. on June 12th, a motorist in Stockton, California, 80 miles east of San Francisco, reported to the California Highway Patrol that he had been forced off the road by three men in a blue Chevrolet. Researchers did some digging and found that the information was not new at all. Several newspapers, including the Humboldt Times, San Francisco Examiner, reported the theft of a car matching the story in the documents. Also key to note is that bones were found and later dug up and examined. Okay, but so then this is, sorry, so you remember the bon the John Bones Doe, uh, the bones that they found that they were like, well, you know, the height and proportions could have matched um, Morris because I guess they were like, no, 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 none of it matches um, the Anglin brothers. I don't know. I guess they just figured that out somehow, but... Michael Dyke, so during this documentary, um, Michael Dyke, the deputy U.S., um, what is he again? 
he's a deputy U.S. marshal. That sounds right. Um, he exhumed the remains of John Bones Doe, and he compared the DNA from John Bones Doe to one of Moritz's paternal relatives, which would have, like, parts of the same DNA, and you could kind of tell that they're related, and the DNA did not match, so the bones were not Morris. I don't really have any evidence as to whether they, like, tested, um, any of the Anglin relatives, but yeah, it's very interesting. So anyways, now that we've looked at all of the evidence, we have three main theories, uh, one of which is an offshoot of the other. But anyways, um, the three theories are that the prisoners escaped and died or uh, escaped and survive. And then the second like sub theory to that is that there's the boat. Um, and lastly, there was a cover up. So looking at the theories, let's get into the first one. The first one is that they escaped and died. So this is the most popular theory among the original investigators that were first on the scene. Evidence of this is the cold temperatures in the bay, the strong winds and tide, and the raft did not have a rudder, the mass of sharks and boats and all of these things that they would just have to deal with in the bay. Uh, the personal effects in the wallet that were found, the large amount of debris from the raft found around the bay, so paddle, raincoat materials, and according to later FBI files, the, the whole raft was found on Angel Island. So let's address this point about why I, shockingly, do not believe the died theory. So firstly, for the cold temperatures thing, triathlons occur in the bay two times per year, swimming the same route, and I don't know of any people who have died there. So about, okay, so yes, I do admit the winds and tide, but there was the tide-based projection that if the crew launched at 1130 to midnight, they could have made it but they would have to let the tides carry them to Golden Gate or um, what the the place I was saying earlier, I think like something Midlands. I'm sorry, I, I, I have a terrible memory. I already forgot. But anyways, they would have to let the tides take them to Angel Island um, where there was some debris found near Golden Gate. Um, also, we need to think that the inmates were going to Angel because of West, who could have had a motive to mislead the police. I think I'll touch on this a lot more in another theory, but... The massive sharks and boats uh, in the bay. So, firstly, it's midnight, so there wouldn't really be that many boats. Also, um, most of these sharks are not actively hunting humans. Like, most of them are, like, hammerhead sharks. Um, I'm just saying they're, like, they're not, like, bull sharks or tiger sharks. Like, some, they're not the breeds that, like, we know and think of as actively hostile towards humans. So anyways, um, and then the last thing about personal effects in the water, I touched on this earlier, but these are hardened criminals, one of which has an IQ of 133 out of 160 and um, has been orphaned since the age of like 11. He, you know what I'm saying? Like they don't really have family. Like Morris probably could have convinced the Anglins that like you will die if you don't like leave this or it just could have happened accidentally. But either way, also, this could have been an effort to mislead the police thinking like, uh, thinking that, you know, they're sentimental and they're going to hold on to these things and they must have died. Okay. Um, yeah, that was kind of it. I don't believe this escaped and died theory. I would have to probably give this like a three out of 10. I just, I think there's a lot of things and there's also kind of a motive for the police to say that it's an escaped and died because, you know, this prison operated for several years after that. What do you think that's going to do to like the security if there's active prisoners that have escaped? So they, they kind of have a motive to 
the police and things that first came on the scene would probably have a motive to say that it escaped and died. But anyways, our next theory is escaped and survives. So this has become more and more popular as a theory uh, among newer pairs of eyes to the case. So mainly evidence is that no bodies have been found in the almost 60 years since the escape. And remember the quote from U.S. Marshal Dyke, I believe, that said that bodies are usually found. Um, evidence is mounting based on tide projections and all of these things that men could have been, uh, they could have survived by floating to Golden Gate instead of Angel. So as far as we were officially told, there was no raft found. Um, also, okay, so now I'm really going to get into why I think West's account is not trustworthy at all. So past the physical evidence on the island of what happened, we have no evidence proving or disproving West's account of the plan. You know, you might think that Wes is the most trustworthy person in the world, but you really do have to think that we don't have any evidence past like the island proving or disproving what Wes was saying. So the prisoners could have either planned to leave West behind as a disinformation campaign for police, telling the police that they would go to Angel when they would actually go to Golden Gate or kind of do a like variant on West plan. Um, I think this is like a huge problem of early police that they just believed that West was left behind. So he'd be so vengeful and reveal the plan. And I think the whole thing about West being unable to get the grate off because he put cement in it um, to make it look more real. This just sounds way, way too simplistic of something to actually get the prisoners down um, who decided to vulcanize and waterproof rafts with steam pipes. Uh, steam pipes and retrofit a vacuum cleaner motor. They like one of them was supposed to fix a vacuum cleaner and it had two motors, one of which it wasn't using. So they took out a motor and they turned it into a drill, like a functioning drill. So this just this whole theory about or this like official explanation about how he sealed over his cell with concrete just sounds way, way too simplistic for me. Uh, yeah, so I think that he, Wes was, like, purposely left behind as a disinformation tactic, or they kind of just believe that, like, okay, whoever is getting left behind, because one of us has to, whoever's getting left behind is going to mislead the police, because, uh, originally, like I said at the beginning of the episode, they said that whoever's not here in time, we will leave without you. Okay, so I would say, obviously, if you couldn't tell from my passion, I believe that theory the most. I probably, if like one is a, oh, like that never would have happened. And 10 is like, oh, that definitely happened. Um, I honestly might give that like an eight or a nine, like very high up there. I think this is very likely. Um, and now into a different theory that I don't really know how credible this is, but this is the theory of the cover up. Basically, after this documentary, some FBI documents from the time uh, concluded that the whole case was a cover up. So some evidence for this theory is that this documentary reveals that supposedly the FBI found the raft intact and that there was a carjacking near the Bay Area in the days surrounding the escape. Um, so I did have it written down as counter evidence, but since I wrote the script for this, I am now thinking that like, you know, they have a reputation to preserve. This is the most inescapable prison. So you can't go off, go around and have people escaping because then it's not the most inescapable prison. So I guess maybe that's a cover up. Um, but I think that's really it. I also do, I guess, I guess, um, I do like the boat theory kind of just that the inmates, 
you know, the boat just kind of pulled up and picked them up. I mean, that does sound very interesting. I don't know if I really believe that whole uh, thing that the witness came forward. Kelly, I believe that's his name, came forward saying like, oh, well, we were supposed to take them from the bay to Seattle, but we double cross them because we're terrible people or something like that. Just that sounded like weird to me. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know how I feel about the cover up theory. I would probably give it like a five out of 10. There's just not much evidence there. It's just, I don't know, maybe we like, yeah, I will admit it's suspicious. Um, but I don't really know if there's anything past that. So yeah, in my personal opinion, uh, I really think that they escaped and survived and there was supposed, there was a letter that was actually sent to the FBI, um, I think in like 2015, like very recently. And supposedly that letter says that all of them are dead except for one of the Anglin brothers. So I think that's very interesting. Um, but yes, so that was our case for today. Thank you guys so much for listening and just really listening to me ramble for, oh my gosh, in 30 minutes, it will be 50, 30 seconds, excuse me, it'll be 50 minutes. So thank you guys for letting me just ramble about this case, which I find very fascinating for about an hour. Um, so yeah, come back next time for a new episode of the 50 States series. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast directory you are listening from. So I love you guys. Have a great day. Bye.